You're listening to COSAM Talks, the monthly podcast for Auburn University's College of Sciences and Mathematics. You may have heard the phrase free radicals, and you may have even heard it in sort of a negative connotation before, but might not really be sure why. Like, what are these free radicals? Why can they be negative? Well, today, we're going to learn a little bit more about that. Thanks for joining in for this month's episode of COSAM Talks. And today, I have with me Christian Goldsmith, professor of chemistry in uh, the College of Sciences and Mathematics here at Auburn. So thanks for joining me, Christian. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Uh, So before we really get into the... uh, Free radicals, or uh, as you refer to them, or I guess more people actually refer to them, uh, reactive oxygen species. Right. Um, before we get into that, just tell me a little bit about what brought you to Auburn and what, why you decided to become a chemistry professor. Ah, that's a good question. So I think that it all started off when I was a kid. And when I was going through school, uh, particularly high school, I really enjoyed the sciences. And um, when I went to college, I was essentially choosing between either chemistry or physics as, uh, as a concentration uh, to focus on. And uh, eventually I decided upon chemistry uh, at the risk of antagonizing any physicists who are listening in. I, I won't go into my full reasons, but it was, I just liked the idea of being able to make new stuff. And I think that was one of the tipping points for me. Um, so I decided to study chemistry in college. And during that time, I had a really excellent professor in inorganic chemistry, uh, Dick Holm. And I enjoyed his class so much that after it was over, I asked him if he had any summer research positions in his laboratory. And he said yes, and he took me on as a, as a researcher. And I really enjoyed that experience an awful lot. So what I was doing as an undergraduate was I was making these metal complexes that were supposed to mimic parts of enzymes mm-hmm. and do the sorts of chemistry that the enzymes themselves could do. And I really found it all just utterly fascinating. And uh, I liked it so much that I continued to study that sort of area in graduate school. So I went to Stanford and ended up working for Dan Stack, who was actually a former student of my undergraduate advisor. And there I likewise studied making small molecule mimics of metalloenzymes, doing oxidation reduction chemistry with them, and um, yeah, just uh, enjoyed myself there. I liked academics, so I decided to uh, try and pursue a professorship. After doing a postdoc at MIT, I went on the academic job market and submitted applications uh, pretty much everywhere I could. And Auburn got back to me, you know, interviews happened, they offered me a position. I liked the department that I saw here and Mm -hmm. I decided to join. So how long have you been here at Auburn? So I arrived here in August, uh, oh I'm sorry, uh, July 2007. So this is my 14th year. Oh wow. Yeah, yeah, I can't believe in myself. Uh, It's kind of crazy how quickly the time passes. What are some things you've really enjoyed about Auburn since you've been here? I really like the community. It seems very welcoming. Um, 
And at other places, it always seemed like the town and the university always kind of had almost an antagonistic relationship. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, the university would want to build a building and then the community would fight tooth and nail against it. Here it seems that like the community and the university really go kind of hand in hand. They kind right. of, they have a more of a common vision, which is nice. Um, other things I like, you know, it's um, you know pretty clean place. You know, not a lot of pollution. The schools are good. I feel like I can raise my kids here, and they're getting a good education. It's a good place to raise a family. Okay. Yeah, I I can agree with that. Yeah, sounds good. <laughs> uh, Getting back to to chemistry, right. um, as yes. a professor, you do you both teach and research. What do you right. what do you enjoy about the teaching aspect? The things I find most satisfying about the teaching is when you really connect with a student and you see him or her really succeed. And I've thankfully had a bunch of those sorts of cases over the years, where someone will go into the class and sometimes they'll change their entire study plan and career plan just because they enjoy the content so much. Um, yeah, a couple of years ago, I remember that there was a woman in, in my second semester in organic chemistry class who came in as a physical chemist. And when she left, she decided to go into inorganic chemistry, largely based on the stuff that she enjoyed from the course. Hmm. And that's, it's really flattering to sort of see someone kind of change direction like that based on something you say in the class. I can imagine that is a very good feeling. Yeah. On the research side, uh, you have your own lab here. Correct. What has been, I guess, not not so much just right now, but what has been the focus of your lab since you've been at Auburn? Uh, and I'm sure it's changed throughout the years. But Sure, sure. I mean, I, I think I'll start more general, uh, first of all. So I'd say that the general focus has been synthetic and organic chemistry. And going more and more specific, I'd say that all of the projects in my laboratory are interested in oxidation reduction processes or redox processes. And this is kind of, this is sort of diverged into two different areas. The first is coming up with catalysts for various redox reactions. Uh, when I first started off, we were looking at making iron compounds that could catalyze the activation of CH bonds. And this sort of process is very important for energy, right? So you have a fuel source and you need to activate it, you need to convert maybe something that's relatively inert into something a bit more useful. And activating CH bonds goes a long way towards that. Um, The other part of my lab has focused on developing imaging agents and uh, this particular Avenue has been supported by the National Science Foundation over the past three plus years, which is uh, quite nice. And it's kind of this area that's kind of intersecting with reactive oxygen species or free radicals. What we're doing in that particular project is we're coming up with uh, small molecule sensors that can detect these within the body. You mentioned the NSF and that you did just recently uh, receive a grant, a $420,000 grant, that's quite a bit of money, to put towards developing these sensors. And you're working with an interdisciplinary team. Oh yeah, I can I can tell you a little bit about that. Right. So uh, in essence, what we're doing is we're making the compounds themselves that are going to be tested. And um, 
the way that a lot of science is nowadays is it's really too big for one individual group to do mm-hmm. everything. I find that the most interesting science out there results from multiple groups of researchers coming together and working kind of towards a common goal. So, yeah, as you mentioned, uh, my group is part of a larger collaboration. So what we do is we design these compounds, we develop these sensors, we develop these catalysts for, for degrading reactive oxygen species. And then we go to other groups to, essentially to test them out. So at Auburn, uh, we've been working with researchers at the College of Veterinary Sciences, mm-hmm. uh, specifically Dean Schwartz. We've also worked with Russell Catley in the past. And what Dean's been able to do for us is to take our compounds and test them on, on assays. And he's also been helping us to test a lot of our uh, catalysts as cytoprotective agents. Okay. Um, we also have a collaboration with another chemist um, from, from overseas, Ivana Ivanovic Bromozovic, uh, who's currently at the University of Munich. She, she moved just this past year. Uh, she had been at Friedrich Alexander Universität uh, earlier. And Ivana is really great in that she brings a unique skill set to the collaboration. So she's one of the best kineticists out there. She can run reactions that occur very quickly and follow how quickly they occur. And uh, on top of that, she also does experiments using cryo-MS to help us characterize reactive species. And she's able to look at the reactions that we're looking at using techniques that we just can't do on campus. Hmm. And uh, it's really nice. It really extends the reach of the science, and, and it's, it's just wonderful. That's pretty awesome. Like we said, you're, you're trying to develop these sensors, or you're developing these sensors mm-hmm. to detect, uh, it was a, a surplus of the reactive oxygen species. Right. Tell us just a little bit more reactive about oxygen reactive species? oxygen species, of what they are, sure. um, how they affect us. Of course. So, yeah, I mean, that's the prime driving force for a couple of projects in my laboratory, uh, including the ones funded by the NSF. So, I mean, uh, a lot of people have heard the term free radicals, and I I guess the first thing that a lot of people would think of would be, you know, like hippies, right? (laughs) (laughs) Hippies are just kind of running around going nuts. Um, But no, 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 that's not quite the definition. Um, So free radicals, that term is often used interchangeably with reactive oxygen species. And the idea is that these are compounds and ions that form during aerobic respiration. So normally your body takes in dioxygen, O2, you know, right from the air. And in order to make energy, this gets converted into water. Now, in order to do this, your body needs to provide that oxygen with four electrons. That's what's needed to break the two bonds between the two oxygen atoms. Now, things can often go awry. So about maybe about 1% of the time, that dioxygen isn't completely converted into water. So let's say you only provide a single electron. You get to a species called O2- or superoxide. Or you add two electrons and two protons to balance out the charge, that'll get you to hydrogen peroxide. 
Now, both superoxide and hydrogen peroxide are reactive oxygen species, or free radicals. And the idea there is that these species do have a strong tendency to react with things. Now, unfortunately, sometimes they react with things you don't want to you don't want them to react with. Right. So they might react with a protein and deactivate it, for instance. They might react with a nucleic acid and prevent it from being transcripted properly. They might react with lipids and prevent the lipids from functioning properly. Right? So the idea is that the body needs to manage manage the concentrations of these things that are going to form just on a virtue of having aerobic respiration being the thing. Um, so what my laboratory is doing is we're coming up with ways to detect whether concentrations of reactive oxygen species are becoming problematic. And we're also coming up with ways to control their concentrations. So with respect to the sensing aspect, what we're doing is we're developing magnetic resonance imaging contrast agents. So these are things that you can add to the body before an MRI scan. Mm -hmm. And it'll improve the contrast of the image. The way you can make a sensor out of one of these is you have something that behaves differently before and after it reacts with something. So the idea here is that we have a compound that we administer, and before it's activated, it leads to very weak contrast enhancement. And then once it gets oxidized by hydrogen peroxide, we see the contrast enhance, uh, enhance considerably. Um, so with the most recent grant that we've gotten, what we're doing is we're coming up with a ratiometric image. So what we're going to do is we're going to fluorinate the molecules that we make so that they have two different outputs. So in a reduced state, we should see a very strong 19F MRI signal, but a pretty weak, normal 1H-based MRI signal. Upon oxidation, the fluorine signal should decrease, and we should see an increase in, in the normal MRI signal, the 1H1. So by comparing the intensity of those two signals, we should be able to tell how much of that sensor has been oxidized in the region of the body and determine what sort of concentration of uh, hydrogen peroxide we've got there. Uh, with respect to the decomposition part of the project, uh, what we're doing is we're coming up with catalysts for superoxide degradation. Now normally superoxide will react with itself and it'll disproportionate to form hydrogen peroxide and O2. The hydrogen peroxide is taken care of by other enzymes and antioxidants within the body. It's not just kind of passing the buck. Um, but that background reaction by itself will keep uh, superoxide concentrations at about the micromolar level but you really need to drop it below that in order to avoid some of these deleterious effects that you see on the body. Mm -hmm. So in the body there are enzymes called superoxide dismutases that speed up that degradation process even more. And what we're doing is we're coming up with small molecules that mimic those enzymes functionally. You mentioned earlier that the free radicals can be the hydrogen peroxide that's produced or the was it superoxide? Uh, superoxide, correct. Superoxide. Hmm. Okay, so the, the sensors that you're developing are only targeting the hydrogen peroxide side of it? Correct. That's kind of our main focus for the ROS sensing 
And uh, the reason that we chose hydrogen peroxide specifically is that it's the most stable of kind of the three main ROSs. Uh, the third one that I didn't talk about was hydroxyl radical. And this is just simply too reactive to intercept, mm -hmm. right? So it re essentially reacts with the first thing that it encounters. Hmm. Hydrogen peroxide is not as reactive as either superoxide or hydroxyl radical. It should accumulate to higher concentrations, and the, the literature I've seen I've seen seems to support that. And that's kind of our top, kind of our main target. Uh, with respect to selectivity, um, in the body, these three different ROSs will interconvert with each other pretty readily. So you have superoxide, for instance, getting converted to hydrogen peroxide. Mm. Hydrogen peroxide will get converted to hydroxyl radical. Um, and the, the way I see it is that if you can detect one of these species, indirectly at least, you're kind of detecting the other two. Okay. So I think that the amount of hydrogen peroxide in a particular area is a pretty good measure of kind of the local oxidative activity. Okay. So hydrogen peroxide is just the easier one to, to get exactly. most of the time. Okay. Right. Right. Both in the article and uh, I think you may have mentioned it earlier about ta uh, targeting specific areas in, in the body. And I, I think I saw that um, this was referring to like the heart and the brain. Um, oh, right. <laughs> are there are there any other specific areas that that would be targeted and, and why would you target these areas? I see. So as far as end applications go, yeah, we are very interested in um, cardiovascular and neurological imaging. And the reason is that there are a lot of really severe debil debilitating health conditions involving those two areas. Um, with respect to the detection, one thing I think might be particularly valuable is if you can correlate a specific sort of neurological disorder, for instance, with the pattern of oxidative stress. The reason why that would be beneficial is that nowadays a lot of these neurological conditions are diagnosed in the clinic just through observation of the mm -hmm. patient. And unfortunately, a lot of these conditions have pretty much identical symptoms, especially early on. Right. So someone goes into the doctor, they have a tremor in their hand, they're having trouble remembering things. That doesn't narrow it down. That's a whole bunch of different things, mm -hmm. some much more severe than others. And if we could provide a contrast agent that could go in and show where ROS activity is particularly severe, that could help distinguish what at first glance appear to be very similar pathologies. Uh, so that's kind of my interest in neurological imaging. Uh, cardiovascular imaging, also, you know, massively important, right? So, I mean, heart disease is one of the major killers of Americans nowadays, mm -hmm. right? And if we can provide something that can go into the heart and image where the problems are occurring, give a doctor a better idea of what's going on, then that's going to be incredibly useful. Okay. And, uh, you know, the the SOD mimics that we're making, uh, SOD being superoxide dismutase, I forget whether I defined it, um, those can also help to treat the problem as well. Okay. So you're, you're trying to develop both a sensor to detect where the problem is and how bad the problem is, 
and uh, something to try to help treat the problem. Exactly. Uh, so we're tackling it from two different directions. Okay. Right. So precisely. So in the in the end, when when all of this is done, how could you see this helping people? Right. Well, I could see this helping people by giving patients more timely diagnoses and alerting them to when things are going wrong. So another disease in which ROS uh, overproduction seems to be an issue is COVID, which is on everyone's mind right now. And in the more severe cases, what seems to happen is that there's a massive amount of oxidative stress that triggers. And then after that, the patient starts kind of going downhill, unfortunately. Where our compounds could possibly help out is to detect when those when those ROS concentrations seem to be spiking, so that a doctor can kind of cut it off before it becomes too severe, and also providing a way to help that doctor prevent those concentrations from being that much of an issue by providing the means to lower them. By being able to lower the uh, reactive oxygen species uh, that are being overproduced, does this help to, I guess, alleviate the problem, or is is this just a symptom of the overall issue? And we're trying That's to help. That's an this excellent symptom. question, right? So, um, at the very least, one would hope that these could alleviate the symptoms, and in many cases, that might be all you need. As far as halting disease progression, that's a trickier problem. Um, Another reason why we're interested in the sensors is to perhaps provide some more detailed information about how ROSs are involved in disease progression. Mm -hmm. There is the question, okay, well, does the ROS overproduction cause the disease or is this merely a symptom that's a little bit farther downstream? Right, right. Yeah. So it's kind of like, you know, what came came first, the chicken or the egg? That's all (laughs) up in the air, and you'll probably get a different answer for for each sort of disease or condition that you investigate. And and depending on who you talk to about it. Right. Right. Okay. Okay. Well, that's a very interesting topic. I've definitely learned learned a lot today, too. Well, thank you. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, Is there anything else regarding this grant that, uh, or or just this, this topic in general that you would like to to touch on today? Oh, gosh. Uh, With respect to the grant, um, I'll also mention that it supports some outreach activities, which I shouldn't give short shrift to by any stretch of the imagination. Um, So what we're doing as part of this grant is we're reaching out to local uh, undergraduate institutions around Auburn. Mm -hmm. So uh, one thing that might not be fully appreciated by by, uh, the listeners, I guess everyone's listening to this, (laughs) is that... You know, as far as East Alabama goes, Auburn's pretty much the place to do sort of mm-hmm. upper-level research. And when you go to other schools, the opportunities are much more limited. Um, so the professors there, they work extremely hard, but most of their time is devoted to, to teaching. Right. right. Their course load is probably a bit higher than a typical research active faculty member at Auburn. Um, resources are also less available, right? So there are experiments that I can do in the chemistry department I wouldn't think twice about, but an undergraduate researcher at, researcher at one of these other institutions would have to travel maybe two hours or more mm. to find a place to, to run the experiment that they need to do. 
and uh, I mean opportunities to travel and present research are also likewise you know pretty limited right so what we're doing with respect to the outreach portion is we're going to these schools we're giving talks we're telling them about the research that we're doing in the lab and then we're inviting researchers from these institutions to come and work in in my lab for the summer so the grant uh, supports I think two undergraduates per summer uh, which is great I've been able to get additional support through uh, Kim Mulligan Guy's mm-hmm. uh, RU program. So she's been extremely generous about you know, helping my undergraduate students, my summer undergraduate students, to find lodging and get opportunities to present work. It's been a really wonderful synergistic relationship. Yeah, that's, that's very nice. Yeah. I thank you again for being here today. Sure. Thank you for uh, having me. Like I said, I... I thought I knew a little bit about this topic just just with reading the article and some other things uh, but I've definitely learned some things today and it's it's very interesting and, uh, and I'm, I'm rooting for you oh thank you <laughs> <laughs> glad to hear it